Good afternoon and welcome back to chapter 5, Grace and Peace Be Yours This Day. For our text, though, we will be looking at Exodus uh, chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments being given to the nation of Israel, the Hebrews. And that's going to be the uh, bulk of our time during this discussion. Uh, But let me open up with this. Do you recognize these words? Will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live together in the holy estate of matrimony as God ordained it? Will you nourish and cherish her as Christ loved his body, the church? Forsaking all others, will you remain faithful to her, united to her alone, so long as you both shall live? It's at this point, of course, that the groom would say, I will, at least he better. Otherwise, he's going to have some people to answer to. (laughs) Yes, who doesn't love weddings? Especially if it's people you know, two individuals that you care about, maybe individuals that you've seen grow and then grow together. It's wonderful to see them make this journey, this commitment together. At the same time, though, we got to be honest, As wonderful as it is, as joy-filled as it is, it's not easy. It's not easy for the two lives to become one. It's a joyous thing, but it's not easy. For the very reason, two lives are becoming one. And especially within that first year or two years, it takes a lot to mold the two into one. You have to start coming to these realizations pretty quickly, right? That the money doesn't just belong to you. In fact, the money belongs to her. Just kidding. That's not true. Belongs to both, but not just one. Uh, The interests, both people might have different interests. And you got to think about what the other person wants and desires too. You're not the only one that has an immediate family. He or she has an immediate family too. And you certainly marry into the family. They have a say in what you're going to do with your time, meaning the the other spouse. The other spouse has a say in where that money is going to go and how you're going to spend it. The other spouse has a saying or a say in what you're going to do with your vacation. You see, all this adds up to where you have to learn how to compromise. You have to come together. But when you do and as you do, it is a wonderful thing a joyous thing. There's no other relationship on earth like it. Now, Exodus 20 is not about marriage, but I can't think of a better example or an analogy uh, to what God is doing in Exodus 20 other than this idea of marriage. Why? Because it's not just a marriage, it's a covenant. It's a promise that's being kept. And God is opening up this opportunity with the Hebrews by proclaiming this to be a covenant. He says, enter this covenant with me. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people if, if you keep my commandments. And if you do, you will be my treasured possession. Now think about that. God is saying to the Hebrews, out of all the nations in the world, you will be the one that I treasure. I will treasure you. Wow. What a powerful thing to think about. God treasuring you. He says, I'll treasure you. 
but you got to keep my commands. But see, here's the thing, unlike marriage, is that these rules that God is giving, they are not negotiable. They can't decide which ones they're going to keep. They can't ask God, you know what? I like this one, but not this one. Can we come up with something else? No. Because the reason why God is putting this in place is so that the Hebrews can be the holy nation. I mean, of the two of them, God and the nation, only one of them is holy. Only one is perfect and only one is the supreme being. And that's, of course, the divine. That's God. He gets to set the standards. And so that's why we have these Ten Commandments. I'm sure you all know them well. Right? Don't have any gods before you. And by the way, this is the uh, the Lutheran Catholic understanding of the commandments or numbering of the commandments. I know there's going to be some differences. It's okay. We believe the same commandments, just the numbering's a little different. Have no other gods before you. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor father and mother. Uh, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife or manservant, maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is what God puts into place. This is the covenant. Now, I said that these aren't negotiable, and they're not. Right? God sets this up for the whole purpose of Israel being a holy nation. Now, there's going to be some other things that God's going to say right after this, right? The, the lampstands have to be the certain way, and the tabernacle has to be done a certain way. And if you were to go on in Scripture, uh, we'll see in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that the law of God is so righteous. There are these things that the people are supposed to do. Right? It sets them apart, and it sets them apart for a purpose. It's not that God is wanting to be a tyrannical God. It's that he wants them to be holy so that all of the world looks at this nation and says, wow, they are a righteous nation. They must belong to a righteous God. See, God had all the earth in mind from the very beginning. And Israel was God's chosen treasure possession for the purpose of being blessed by God as they keep these commandments and so that everybody else would be drawn to God and be drawn away from all the other false gods. Now, we know in the future that Israel isn't going to do it, right? But this is how God sets it up. Now, some of those ceremonial laws uh, are going to be uh, not really valid for us non-Jews down the road, but they certainly can be something that we observe if we understand that they point to Jesus. But the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and the things that we do with our bodies and, and such, those things are going to remain, right? God designed us this way to, to have these things in mind. And so we will, of course, always uphold them, and they are to uphold them as they hear these words from Moses. Now, one of the things that always makes me chuckle is that right after this law is given, what do the people of God proclaim after they hear this, after they hear the voice of God, the booming thunder of God's voice? They say, whatever the Lord says, we will do. And of course, it's not going to happen. They fail, they falter, they fall, just like us. 
fact, one of the times it's going to be pretty hard. Pretty quick, right after this whole thing happens, Moses is going to go spend some more time with God. And he's going to be gone for the rest of the nation for 40 days. It's a long time, right? over a month. And so we see now that this nation of Israel, well, it's really not a nation. They don't have a land that they can call their own. They don't really have a leader, though Moses is supposed to be. He's the prophet. He's the one that goes to God and God speaks through Moses. They don't need another leader. But as far as earthly reigns go, they don't have a king. Um, they don't really have laws and rules per se, but those are just starting to be instituted, right? They definitely have these commands and they're supposed to follow them. But while Moses is away, the people come to Aaron. I guess they look at him as the second in command. He certainly is the one that usually proclaims what Moses tells him to proclaim. And they say, make us gods. For we don't even know where this Moses guy has went. Uh, make us gods, the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Now that's just silly, isn't it? How can they make or create gods, the gods that brought them out of Egypt when that already happened, right? You can't create something after the fact to help you. I mean, it's just silly, right? How can man-made hands create the divine, especially the God of the universe, who was all-powerful, who did all of the miracles and wonders of Egypt? And I don't know what it is, but Aaron gives in. I don't know if it's just the temptation of being in charge and giving people what they wanted, but he does it, right? He takes all the gold, the gold that was supposed to be a gift, the Egyptians gave it to the people as they were leaving. God blessed them with this gold to sustain them on their journey. But how are they going to use this blessing, this gift? They're going to use it to create gods that are going to be absolutely useless. So this treasured gift that God has given them, they're going to use it for something that's absolutely worthless. And the excuse that Aaron gives, I just find is completely unbelievable. It's the kind of thing that a, a two or three-year-old would say when they were caught with their hand in the cookie jar. I don't know what happened to the cookies, uh, where they went. It just like they popped into my mouth all by themselves and they went down into my tummy, right? That sounds foolish, but what does Aaron say? We put the gold in the fire and out popped this calf. I don't know how it happened. It just did. Oh, come on, Aaron. You're being ridiculous. Well, anyway, as a result of all of this, you read through the story, there's going to be punishment. There's, there's going to be death. And I think that's something that we too should think about when we consider these commandments, when we consider these rules, when we consider what God has put into place. Because the reality is we don't really even have to have him punish us when we break them because the punishment is typically already built in. What happens when we don't honor our marriages? See, things happen and it's not good. And it's not that God needs to kill us or punish us because death becomes a part of our lives when we break these things. Now, do I mean there's going to be an actual physical death? Not necessarily, but what happens if a man continuously lusts in his heart for a woman that's not his wife? Eventually, it's going to lead to a slow decay of the marriage. Deathly circumstances in that marriage. Things will never be as good as they could have been. 
Same thing can be said about that fourth commandment and the way that we honor our, our parents and the way that our children honor us. If that gets broken and continuously, repeatedly gets broken, there's going to be a death in that relationship as well. If we do it to our parents, our children will see how we treated our parents and they could treat us the same way. What would break that cycle? But let's get to the heart of it. Let's get to commandment number one, right? Most theologians will tell you, if you get the first commandment right, if you have no other gods but God alone, the others really do fall into place. The problem is we don't get number one right. We fall into the same temptation as Adam and Eve. We want to be God. (laughs) That's why we have trouble with the fourth commandment. We want the authority. We want to be in charge. That's why we get concerned about what? Killing people. Maybe not physically, but destroying their reputation. Because we think that they deserve it. Why do people steal? Because they want something that they think belongs to them, that they deserve it. Why do we covet? Because there's a desire that we have to make other people's cool stuff ours. That might sound silly, but we do it, don't we? We covet. We lust. We have murderous thoughts. We, we steal. We scheme. We don't love God with our whole, our, our whole heart, and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We break these commandments daily. But let's look at this maybe in a different light. What happens when we keep the commandments? For instance, commandment number three, remember the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. What happens when we keep these commandments What happens when we treat the Sabbath as holy? What would happen if in our entire church body, if all of our members showed up to church every single Sunday? What would happen if everybody heard the same word being proclaimed? How might our church be different? And if you go to a different church, you can think about this with regards to your congregation. But how might the church be different? If the person sitting next to you in the pew wasn't missing every other Sunday, and if you weren't missing every other Sunday. So then you'd actually see each other every week, not maybe every three weeks. You'd actually start to build a rapport, a friendship, a trust that you have with one another. What would happen if we actually went and read the announcements and we knew what was going on in our congregations and knew of the fellowship opportunities and knew how we could step up and chip in? What would it mean for our entire congregation to honor God, to go to him and praise, to skip some of those extracurricular activities and make church the priority? Now, some of you may be feeling guilty about this, and I'm not looking at or thinking about anybody in particular. I'm looking at the good of what happens when the church falls in line with these commandments. Wouldn't we be strong? Wouldn't we be a whole lot different when we are soaking in the word of God, every single one of us together every week? Wow. It's incredible. What would happen if we really did honor all of the commandments and we didn't disrespect our spouse? How might our marriages be different if we actually tried to make our husband number one? Or our wives, number one. How might that be different if we placed their needs above ours? Well, this really wasn't supposed to be about marriage, and it's not. 
But perhaps you can kind of see why I bring it up. Because this is the, the relationship that God uses when talking about himself in the church. Jesus is what? The groom. And we are the bride. And just like between a husband and wife, some could say it's hard for the two to become one. Especially when we, the church, we, the bride, tend to go after a different groom, worshiping somebody else or caring about our own needs other than anybody else. But this is what's so amazing about the relationship. Is that while here at the beginning in Exodus, God says, if you obey my commands, you will be my treasured possession. But God will do whatever he can to keep this covenant. This covenant that's been cut by blood. See, that's the reality when you look at these covenants. Covenants that are made in the Old Testament are made by blood. You would spill an animal's blood and you would tear that animal in half. You'd walk between the two pieces of the animal and you'd say to the, to the other person, if I break the covenant, may I be like this sacrifice, dead. And then the other person would do the same. But in this particular case, it's Jesus Jesus is the one that is cut, even though we are the one that breaks the covenant. You see how powerful that is? The groom cares so much for his bride. Regardless of all of the spots, regardless of how many times it's fate, we've been faithless, God continues to be faithful and he will give his life for his bride. He will give it all. He will give his very life. He will die. Because he would rather die for his bride than spend eternity without her. So I want you to do something for me. I want you to go into your bathroom or bedroom. Look in the mirror. I know it's probably going to feel kind of weird. And it's okay if you want to make sure no one's around first. But look in the mirror and say this. Say, you are God's treasured possession because it's true. You're God's treasured possession. He doesn't value anything more. And see, that's kind of why I keep waiting for Hallmark to come out with a new, new card for an anniversary or for a wedding. And I know it's not going to stick and I'm probably the only person that would actually appreciate it. But I want to say something like, no matter how you cut it, babe, I'm glad I cut a covenant with you. Because that might not be mushy or gushy like my heart sings or my soul sings for you, but it actually says a whole lot more. Which is why we in our church body uphold marriage. Because what we're saying when a husband and a wife come together and face one another at the altar and we give the I do's, what we're saying is no matter how we feel, no matter what our circumstances are, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, no matter what, I'm going to make my commitment to you so that I don't do something stupid down the roads when my feelings fade. I want to make a commitment to you no matter what so that the only thing that can separate us is death. You see how powerful that is? That is way more romantic And having one spouse say to the other one, I am going to do whatever it takes to place you first. No matter how I feel, you're going to be number one in my life. I'm committed to you until I die. Man, 
A person that comes to you like that, the spouse that, that, that lives this way, that's an easy spouse to love, isn't it? Imagine if both were doing this. But see, the epitome of this is Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus does when he goes to the cross. How powerful this really is. And see, because of that, may we look at the commandments and think about how we might live them in our lives too. Uphold them because we know that it brings goodness, right? It's for good godly living that these commandments are in place. It's it's for the good of the community. So may we keep them in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, no matter what, because death does not part us and our relationship with God. Because of his work, we live forever. All right, friends, I pray this week uh, you think about the covenant a little bit differently. Think about how it applies to your life. Think about these commandments too. I pray that you're a blessing to somebody today and that you see God's blessings in your life. See you next week.